Welcome to Canine Nation. It's Sunday, January 27th, 2019. This is episode 121. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is Eric Brad. This week, I wanted to talk about competition. Over the years, my wife and I have been involved in many dog sports, from obedience to agility to confirmation showing and even rally obedience. There are lots of games that we humans have invented to play with our dogs. They're a great exercise in coming up with new things to teach our dogs and it's a great way to show off the cooperation between dogs and humans. But competition has a way of bringing out interesting personality traits in people, and it can be easy for us to forget that the dog really doesn't have a sense of competition. Oh, sure, they may compete for resources in the wild, but I really don't think they understand the rules or what's at stake in these complicated games we humans create. So I wanted to explore the dynamics of our relationships with our dogs in the context of those competitive events, and I put my thoughts down in an essay that I call Competing with Dogs. It seems like there are more dog sports today than ever before. Whether your passion lies in more traditional sports like obedience, tracking, or field work like hunting and retrieving, or some of the newer sports like rally obedience, freestyle, or barn hunt, there are plenty of opportunities for you to get out and have some fun with your dog. Every weekend will likely offer you a chance to compete in some fun sports with your dog. Dog owners can prepare rigorously for competition events with their dog. Frequently, Dog sports organizations refer to their competition events as trials that offer an opportunity for dog owners to show what they have taught their dogs and how well, or poorly, they can perform in the skill tests of that competition. Depending on the sport and the level at which you compete, this can be a pretty serious affair. There is recognition for achievement at stake, in some cases even cash prizes, trophies, and other awards. There may also be a certain amount of personal notoriety at stake for the handler. Regardless of which dog sport we're talking about, I think it's important to remember that these are games. We invented these games essentially to evaluate our abilities as dog trainers to demonstrate the specific skills that we've developed with our dogs. Given the cognitive ability of dogs as science currently understands them, It might be interesting to consider if our dogs even have a sense that they're competing at all. Our dogs do know that they're following our directions, no matter what the sport. We work on training the specific behaviors appropriate. We rehearse those behaviors for speed, accuracy, and fluency under various conditions, and when we feel that we and our dog are ready, we go off to a competition to test our skills against the sport's performance criteria and our fellow competitors. Through it all, I have to wonder how our dogs view our very human passion for these sports as we strive for excellence. It's likely that they see it only as responding to a series of cues to offer us the practice behaviors. 
other than the crowds and the noise and sometimes the unique equipment, directing our dog around an agility course or through an obedience exercise is no different than asking our dog for similar behaviors around the house or out at the park, at least from the dog's perspective. I've competed in the sport of dog agility for the last 10 years. Every trial event offers different courses through which I must direct my dog successfully. If I manage to do so without exceeding the allowed number of faults and within the time limit, I earn a qualifying score. I have passed that test. If I accrue too many faults or take too much time, it's a non-qualifying run and I have failed that test. And this is where things can get strange for the dog. There are any number of ways to fail a trial at an agility competition. My dog could not respond to one of my cues and elect to run past a piece of equipment they were supposed to do. My dog could not jump high enough and knock a bar down with a toenail on the way over. My dog might even respond correctly to my physical signal to go to an incorrect piece of equipment when I accidentally send her to the wrong place. So it's possible for a dog and handler team to fail to qualify even though the dog responded perfectly to all of the signals they were given by the handler. This is where I think the competition model becomes a challenge for us. We prepare ourselves and our dogs to the best of our ability, and we put ourselves to the test. When it all works, we are justifiably proud of ourselves and our dog. But what happens when it doesn't work? The one thing that our dogs definitely know is that they live with us. We provide for them, and I suppose, in the larger scheme of things, they know that when we are not happy with them, things are generally not going to be much fun. When things don't go well when we compete with our dogs, what do our dogs make of our reaction to that disappointment? Is the handler upset at the dog for their failure to perform, or at themselves for not providing what their dog needed to succeed? Most importantly, would the dog even understand the difference between those two reactions? Our reaction to success or failure in dog sports can have profound implications on the relationship we have with our dog. Dogs are social creatures, and they are always concerned about maintaining a good relationship with their human. Psychology might consider this in the realm of social validation, at least as it applies to humans where we look to the reactions of others to help us assess the status of our relationship and to choose how to behave in order to make things right. But our dogs are not human. They may not understand that we are upset with ourselves and not with them. Can they even understand this, and how do they respond? Dogs are remarkably observant creatures, and in a very real sense, their well-being depends on maintaining a good relationship with their humans. Sports like agility can offer multiple opportunities to mess up, even in just running a single course. That means that my displays of frustration and disapproval at my own poor handling skills might be apparent to my dog several times in a matter of only a few seconds. To make matters worse, in that moment, it's likely that I'm not really focused on my dog's emotions, only on the pass-fail test in front of us. One of the agility venues I've competed in 
has a rule about approaching an obstacle and not performing it on the first try. It's called a refusal. In that particular venue, a single refusal can result in a non-qualifying run, a fail for that particular run. If this refusal should happen early in the course, the handler's disappointed reaction can have an effect on the dog's performance throughout the rest of the course. The sudden death nature of that particular fault might invalidate all of the other good work that the dog may do. All hopes for a qualifying run are lost in that one moment. That disappointment may very well be read by our dog as a kind of disapproval. And if it happens a lot, that can't be fun for the dog. It can be even more frustrating if my dog is just following the direction that I have given her, even if that instruction is being performed badly by a nervous and unprepared handler. Over time, our reactions to what happens during competition can take its toll on my relationship with my dog. Agility, tracking, rally obedience, confirmation showing, protection sports, freestyle, and many others are sports that we have invented. Each offers its own unique opportunity to teach our dogs a variety of skills and to test those skills in a friendly spirit of competition. I have chosen to approach these competitions as a means to judge myself against myself, as a way to evaluate the work I've done as a trainer and working partner with my dog. Our roles are clear. My dog is the athlete and the performer out there, and I am the teacher and coach helping her to try to be successful. Every success my dog and I enjoy is a point of pride, that we have worked together and that she has learned all that she needs to be successful at that activity. Every failure is an important indicator that there are skills that are not quite where they need to be, whether that means my skills as a handler need to be improved or that I need to do a better job teaching the skills to my dog. The important thing is that my dog never fails. She was either improperly directed by me or didn't have enough training from me to do the job I asked for. In both cases, the responsibility is mine to go back and try to make it work better. Maintaining a positive relationship with my dog is important to me. The fact that she will show up and be willing to try each time we practice or compete tells me that she's enjoying herself. Her excited bark and broad smile as she runs from jump to jump in agility is my proudest achievement. My dog Tira was 10 years old when I first wrote this, and she played agility with me with all the enthusiasm that she showed as a 10-month-old puppy. As I developed my skills and she learned hers, I tried hard not to show any disappointment or frustration at our failures in competition. Putting the relationship first has paid off for both me and my dog. Not everyone that competes with their dog in dog sports shares this point of view. I have seen handlers angrily stomp off the course dragging their dog behind them. I have seen handlers verbally berating their dog for blowing them off or not responding the way they thought they should. I have seen the disappointment, frustration, and anger in the faces of handlers mirrored in the behavior and body language of their dogs. The same dogs that they will take home and want to cuddle with in bed that night. And I wonder what the dog must make of that contrast in behavior. 
Sure, it's a competition, but it's also a game. And ultimately, it's just life with my dogs. At least, that's the way I think my dogs see it. If you enjoy these podcasts, why not drop by our website at caninenation.ca and you'll find dozens more to listen to. While you're at it, perhaps click on the donate button and offer us a dollar or five or whatever you'd like to give to help support the podcast and help us keep the lights on. Or you can support the podcast by spreading the word on social media or leaving us a review on iTunes. I'd love to hear feedback from you about the podcast. If you have any comments, stories, or questions, you can email me at talk2 at caninenation.ca. That's talk and the number two at caninenation.ca. I look forward to your comments. Canine Nation is also on Facebook. You can find our Canine Nation page where we post information about the latest articles, podcasts, and news about Canine Nation events. We also have a discussion group, the Canine Nation Forum. It's a place to discuss the podcast, the Canine Nation essays, life with dogs, and training our dogs, or just to share some information we found around the Internet. Thank you for listening. I'd appreciate it if you'd share this with the dog people in your life. I guess that's all for now. Until next time, have fun with your dogs. Thank you.